Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Joshua Knoll. Today, we have a very special guest, um, author of New York Times bestseller, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Um, <laughs> uh, this is uh, Kristen Kobes. Man, see, I, I, see, I just had the Dume. <laughs> you were so head. perfect before. It- Kristen Kobes Dume. Oh, it is Kobes. Okay. I. <laughs> I just got myself tongue-tied. Uh, she is a, a professor of history at Calvin University. I believe uh, history, gender, and urban studies are your field, right? hmm Yeah. And, yeah, the perfect, perfect author for this book. Um, we're really excited to talk about that and how it relates to Christian unity. I know a lot of our audience are white evangelicals, so a title like this can be challenging, you know, might raise an eyebrow. Why are you having her on a unity podcast? Um, And I'll just say up front, I'm inclined to believe that things that challenge your belief and where you come from can help you relate better to Christians that aren't of the same subculture as you. So I think this is a very valuable conversation, whether you agree or not, it is still valuable as a book and as a conversation. And I just just asking you guys to hang in there with us and really kind of consider these topics. Um, that being said, uh, we do like to review some of our audience engagement. Uh, recently, we asked our Friday silly question of if you could train a rhino to do any one task, what would it be? Uh, Thomas Stewart said he wants to see a rhino play ladder ball. I don't even know what ladder ball is, but I already find that amusing. I just looked up what it looked like and I was like, I yeah, yeah, I, I want to see whatever this is. So, <laughs> hey, Thomas, I'm right there with you. Thank you for your answer. Thank everybody for participating. Uh, With that being said, we'll jump into today's silly question because silliness is one of my favorite forms of unity because unlike politics, it is just so hard, (laughs) so hard (laughs) to be divided when you're being silly. (laughs) Um, And today's it's it's a weirdly worded one. So I'm going to answer first. So you kind of get a feel for where we're going with this. Um, What is one thing you would like to be able to break that you can't break right now? Um, so I was thinking like unbreakable objects, that kind of thing. Um, I'm going to say water. I would like to see water break because just as a concept, my brain can't go there. And I like to try and visualize things that I can't visualize. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, Kristen, what is uh, one thing you would like to break that you can't break right now? Oh, man. Um so I actually got a little heads up on this one. I uh, read this question just before we came on and I quick <laughs> asked my three kids I'm like, oh, no, there's a really hard question here. You have to help. And so my innocent little eight year old immediately COVID, we have to break COVID. <laughs> She's going to get her <laughs> vaccine uh, in just a few minutes. And then my middle child, my oldest daughter said the patriarchy. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> uh, and then, oh, and then my oldest, I was like, no, time. You don't break it, but bend it. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, we're going with that. One. We need to bend time somehow and we need more of it right now. Wow. Wow. So how, how old is your middle child said patriarchy? Uh, she just turned 13. Man, that's uh, okay. Yeah, she, you know, she spent she spent the last 18 months sitting outside my office door here and listening to me give interviews. So she's pretty up on the topic. Wow. Yeah, that's um, a really informed answer to, <laughs> to a very uninformed question. <laughs> so 
Yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. Um, well, before we get into anything too much, could you tell our listeners just a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. So, yeah, I'm a I'm a professor at Calvin University here in West Michigan. I grew up in Northwest Iowa in a small town, Sioux Center. Uh, my dad was a theology professor at Dort University back when it was just Dort College, and uh, he's an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church. So I grew up in that kind of Dutch ethnic Reformed subculture. My mom herself was an immigrant from the Netherlands after the war. And uh, yeah, I, I grew up in in that space, um, very intellectual space, very, um, very religious space. Uh, my dad wrote his dissertation on Abraham Kuyper. And uh, so I grew up rooted in that tradition. I went to Dort um, and, you know, I took courses in Calvin's Institutes and I loved it. Uh, so I'm very much rooted in that uh, Reformed tradition. Then I went on to graduate school at the University of Notre Dame, and I studied American religious history. And it was there that I was also introduced to women's history and the study of gender. And I was immediately fascinated and um Never really saw, um, you know, my scholarly work or kind of the trajectory um, that I've taken as a departure from the faith tradition in which I grew up. Although certainly not all have followed that same trajectory, um, but I was always introduced in the Reformed tradition to a, a kind of social justice strand of, you know, God's sovereignty and uh, the idea of re- redeeming, reforming all of life and being agents of renewal. That's the tagline of my my current you. University. And so I really see the work that I do as as part of this calling to be critical, to use our intellectual gifts and um, and and to work to be agents of renewal in in our society and in our churches. Yeah. Now, the reform tradition, is that considered part of the evangelical movement or is that separate? Oh, this is the question I get all the time. In fact, just uh, five minutes ago, I was oh, on. Uh, had to do a, no, I had to do a quick uh, 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 back and forth with an editor uh, who's working on a, a piece and said, is Kelvin evangelical? I was like, okay, so let's see. Uh, Cal- the Christian Reformed Church is a, a member of the Association National Association of Evangelicals. So there's your short answer. You can get away with saying that it's <laughs> evangelical, right? The Reformed tradition. More broadly, uh, it can be, it doesn't need to be, um, right? It's a confession, confessional tradition. Uh, in my own denomination, I would say really through up, up to around the 60s and then and then beyond that for some, um, particularly in this Dutch um, immigrant culture, most people identified over against American evangelicals, right? You know, we're different mm-hmm. from uh, and and better than, <laughs> to be honest, right? Oh. Um, uh, kind of in the in, in the mentality. Certainly, I grew up in that. Um, and um, but in the last decades, you can really see this kind of evangelical culture, evangelical teachings, evangelical identity really take hold within many Reformed denominations, including the Christian Reformed Church. So as a religious historian, sorry, you're going to get kind of a complicated <laughs> answer. Uh, but I that think many in the Reformed community would are de facto evangelicals now, but certainly not all. Yeah. See, I wouldn't ask for anything less than complicated. <laughs> um, no, no, see, so so along those lines, I, and this is just like my thought. I feel like e- even when reading this title, there's like there's two different things people mean by evangelicals or even, you know, white evangelicals. You know, there are people who are, you know, intellectual and have the actual evangelical stance. And it's almost like we don't count true evangelicals as the, what we mean when we talk about this almost because there's this like 
culture that is evangelical, even if they don't believe what the original statements of evangelicalism even were. In fact, well, I yeah. feel like yeah, like that's what I don't even know what it is. is. The problem is like there aren't really original statements of evangelicalism, right? You know, like you can yeah. go back, you can look at the NAE's website, um, and and we could get some you know theological beliefs there that maybe what you're referring to. Um, and one of the things I do in my book is I actually push back against that theological definition of evangelical. I'm not saying you can't use it. You can use it for certain purposes, but I'm a cultural historian. And so to describe the movement that I'm talking about, this post-war religious, cultural, and political movement that identifies as evangelical, what I came to see through my research, I mean, I originally intended to use the kind of standard theological definition, which um, historian nerds refer to as the Bebbington Quadrilateral, uh, because it was coined by uh, British historian David Bebbington. To be an evangelical is to uphold the authority of the scriptures, right? Uh, is crucicentrism or centrality of the cross, conversionism, this born again experience, then activism um, or evangelism acting out of your faith, right? That's kind of the standard definition of evangelicalism that evangelical leaders promote. What I realized when I was working on this book was um, that wasn't getting me very far at all. That wasn't yeah. really describing <laughs> what I was seeing. And yeah, so so there's different responses. Evangelical leaders will say, oh, those people aren't real evangelicals, right? Even though they are, they might attend an evangelical church or they might not. They're, you know, listening to Christian radio and they're buying evangelical books. And that's actually where I ended up going. Are you part of this evangelical culture? culture. Do you listen to Christian radio? Do you um, shop at Christian bookstores? Do you, <laughs> yep. right? Are you part of this consumer culture really? And is that shaping your, your um, understanding of who God is? Is that shaping your understanding of who you are? And that actually maps up quite closely with self-identification. And, and so that's the um, evangelicalism that I'm looking at. It's not disconnected from theology, but it can't be reduced to theology. And I think that's something that this yeah. book that does that's different from some older studies of evangelicalism that treat it as a pure theological movement. That's not what I'm doing here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, what's interesting because you do have these like, um, like the evangelical Lutheran church of America or the reformation church. That's like, they, they claim evangelical. And what they mean is they believe those four statements, but they're not necessarily part of this culture thing we're talking about. In fact, exactly. you'd almost think that some of their beliefs are opposite of that. Exactly. Yeah. The evangelical yeah. Lutheran church isn't very evangelical. It gets confusing, yeah, right? Which is weird. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah. But there's, you know, older definition, right? There's an older, I've actually written on this in different places where you can look at the word evangelical and see how the meaning of that word has changed over time. Right. And, and you can do interesting linguistic studies. I've run some of those studies and you can see how the term evangelical simply meant different things in different times and places. It's, it means something different today in, uh, in Europe. Right. It means essentially Protestant and it means different things in the global church. And it means. And so I'm very comfortable as a historian understanding what does this word mean to people in the United States today? And particularly when we're looking at all this survey data, you know, do you identify as born again? Do you identify as evangelical? Um, now, the, the things that I write about, particularly the political orientations of evangelicals, turns out those um, hold very steady, whether we're looking at self-identification, whether we're looking at denominational affiliation, or um, whether we're looking at a theological definition. 
Yeah. And that, that's one thing I actually really liked about the book, too, was a lot of times. And, and what's funny is I caught myself doing it the first time. Or I've, I've read your book several times. Um, <laughs> but the first time I read it through, I, I've caught myself where, like, I'm reading this and I'm like, yeah, OK, but those evangelicals, like if you were to ask them what they believe, they don't believe the same thing as me. And then you were like, oh, well, actually, so we did this study and <laughs> they all answered this way. And I was like, oh, yeah. well, crap, that that is yeah. that is this culture that I've been in. Then it's like you can't deny it once it's like the way you frame it. It makes it hard to escape, yeah. which yeah. is what I you think know, makes I was- it extra challenging. Yeah. And I was writing this book as a historian, right? So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, looking at primary sources. I'm, I'm looking at things in the past. And then as I was writing it, and as I was finishing it, there is a lot of, um, of survey data that started coming out, and and it was mapping on so precisely to what I was describing kind of qualitatively, historically, uh, I ended up connecting with a number of social scientists, political scientists, right, who were, who were coming up with this data. And I, I and, and it was almost like my my book was the narrative that explained their data. And so it does uh, overlap very neatly. Yeah, yeah, which was, yeah, <laughs> like I said, it, it was it was challenging. Um, so I do have to ask because, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, who who read the Christian books, like we were, you know, talking about the Christian shows, all that, are typically the ones who look for books titled Jesus and John Wayne <laughs> until they see the <laughs> subtitle, maybe. Um, yeah, so I've had some I, requests for for the, the book without <laughs> the subtitle uh, so that it could get in the hands of a few more people. <laughs> so um, who, who did you have in mind as the target audience is really what I'm getting at. I love that question. Uh so yeah, not too long ago, I went back to the proposal for this book. You know, you have to send to potential publishers, and then they decide if they want if they want to work with you or not. And and I was looking at it, and I was I was very clear that there are two audiences. One is just the general public, and that's the audience I put right up front because I think this is a story that matters to. Uh, America, uh, and that matters to the world, actually. Yeah. And I, I just I write with that that broad audience in mind. I'm an academic, and I um, my first book is with a you know university press, and and that's just I'm writing to other interested people, not just to a Christian audience. For this one, I also said there is a strong secondary audience here, and that's evangelicals themselves. And I was um, kind of surprised to see that I put that there so boldly because I think that my um, publisher that I actually went with, I I don't think they actually believe that. <laughs> like they're completely outside of the evangelical world. And I think they thought evangelicals would would pretty much hate this book. And so their audience is essentially anybody who reads the New York Times. Um, and so that's what they were working with. Um, I, I still, my heart audience, honestly, was still evangelicals, but I was not crafting this book for evangelicals. Always that broader audience was um, was primary. And my editor was really helpful. He comes from completely outside this world. So he would frequently flag things as, you know, I don't know what you're talking about here or too many names here, thin it out too much. You know, my evangelical readers are like, give yeah. us more, right? <laughs> we know all the people in the room here, like, you know, tell us more. And for somebody on the outside, like, oh, this is too much. So, um, so the audience was the combination. And that's actually what the subtitle gets at, right? Because um, 
uh, okay, first thought, I will confess uh, the the subtitle. I'm not I'm not trying to woo the evangelical reader here, right? <laughs> I um, yeah. We it took us months actually to come up with that subtitle. Um, in part, I've always seen this as my book on evangelical masculinity and militarism, and and then the sales team. This is a trade press, so a lot of people weigh in. They came back with one of our like our our selected subtitle and and broke the news to me and my editor that we were not allowed to use the word masculinity or militarism in the subtitle because they were too long. So we were just like, oh, okay, what do we do here? We have to really get at, you know, what is this book really about and who is it for? And that's when we came up with eventually this combo. And I was given the choice of, in the end, um, how white evangelicals transformed a faith or corrupted a faith um, and fractured a nation. I, I've, as the author, I made the choice to go with corrupted because Which, transformed can be a good thing. And I, I just wanted to be super clear. Yeah. With a title like Jesus and John Wayne, I wanted to be clear up front what, what's in store for the reader. I didn't want any bait and switch. And, um, and that was my moment to speak to evangelicals directly, because I want to be super clear. That's not a historical claim. There is no such thing as corrupting the faith historically. That was me stepping in and talking to my secondary audience, my heart audience to Bible believing Christians. Right. And to say, um, uh, you know, something has gone really wrong here. Um, and we need to take a fresh look at the scripture. So that's me talking to to them. Um, and then the fractured a nation is really to talk to the broader audience. Yeah. What's the so a couple things with that? So what was really interesting to me is I so the first time I actually saw your book, just I'll be a little bit transparent. I, I was in the bookstore and all I saw was Jesus and John Wayne in big letters, and I was like, ah, I don't need another Christian book. <laughs> And because I grew up in the age of evangelical faith and, you know, so, so many of them are pretty much the same book with new wrapping. And I, yep, yeah, I'm yeah. trying not to be offensive by that, but it is true. You, you, you know what I mean? And it, it just know. was in that section. So I was like, whatever. And then I saw it the second time I saw it, I, I was a little less lazy that day and I read the subtitle. And I, I got to say, I think if it had said transformed, I would not have been as intrigued. Yeah. And I want to believe a lot of the people I know who who have read your book and enjoyed it and were challenged by it were people like me who kind of younger grew up in the evangelical faith and were like, Hey, this culture doesn't seem to represent my culture anymore. And you know, these two political parties and it's like, neither of these really represent us. Uh And just seeing someone kind of challenge the framework there. I was like, yeah, this is, this is something I need. And then I read it and I was like, yeah, no, that was something I needed. (laughs) So but that's yeah, good no, to hear. A- yeah, I, I I don't regret that at all. And yeah, some people recently, I was just in a in a group of evangelicals, and you know, they're saying really wanted to to say, but couldn't you have just written it a little bit, you know, a little bit more gently? That that intro, oof, and that you know that subtitle. We there's so many people we want to hand this book to, and we just can't. And I guess my response to that is um, people just need to step up, right? (laughs) Like this is, (laughs) this is, you can read a book. Trust me, you can read a book and you can ask people to read a book. And um, uh, I, uh, what I, what I realized is that so much of um, the history of evangelicalism has been presented by evangelicals themselves 
who are acutely aware of this need to not offend evangelicals, to build them up, to inspire them, to you know, write these inspirational yeah. <laughs> histories best face forward. And I think that has actually done a lot of harm to evangelicals and beyond evangelical spaces. So I wanted to be really clear. I'm just not participating in that culture of deference here. Yeah, like it's um, well, when people keep telling you you're doing a great job. You can do a little bit better over here. All, all you really hear is you're doing a great job, <laughs> um, which, you know, as a historian, you could probably point them to like, I don't know, Martin Luther. <laughs> he, he wasn't exactly, you know, gentle with how he framed stuff. And honestly, I, I would I would say his contribution, you know, not only did it kind of help create the Protestant faith, but mm-hmm. I, I think it kind of helped the Catholic faith get kind of more back on track. And I would say, you know, even if you want to stick to the evangelical doctrines, if you want to stick to that faith, if that's who you identify as, I don't think that's the problem. But I do think you need to be able to be challenged and rethink it because we can't have unity if we're becoming, you know, if we're corrupting a faith. Exactly. Right. We do need to be we need we need to tell the truth about ourselves. And that's really important. Any unity has to be built upon the truth. And um, and. You know, and also I think that there is this impulse within evangelical spaces to um, not um, offend, to not, you know, to to not cause disunity, which is presuming erroneously so. I say this as a historian of American Christianity, it is presuming a unity, right? And that unity does not exist. And so as a historian of American Christianity, the most clear like uh, break is is a is a racial one. And so th- the thing that makes people most angry with my um, subtitle, actually, for people who are angry about it, is the white, the adjective there, uh, mm-hmm. the white evangelical. And, and to me that I, I mean, I, I kind of get it because I, I know where they're coming from. But to me, as a historian, that is purely descriptive. We are taught and white evangelicalism is its own thing culturally, historically, and uh, I mean, in terms of fellowship, we have deeply segregated churches. Also in terms of this consumer culture, um, as I'm defining it, uh, who are the consumers and who are the producers? Who are the intended consumers of these religious products? By and large, these these, uh, markets are white. They are assumed as such. They are, are, I mean, as much as um, publishers, Christian publishers and Musicians would like to expand their audience. They don't. They instead, you know, target a white middle class Christian audience. And that's really this is the 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 group that I'm talking about. And we can talk theology, too. If you're just going like bare bones kind of evangelical theology, sure. Evangelicalism, you can say, is a, it's a global movement. It's racially diverse. As soon as you scratch beneath the surface. Um, you know, we're talking about biblicism, the authority of the scriptures, which Bible passages are white evangelicals holding up as authoritative versus in the black church tradition with who is Jesus to you? What does the Jesus look like in the prophetic tradition of black Christianity versus white evangelicalism right beneath the surface? You see, there are some really deep differences and we haven't even talked about activism, right? Living out your faith. And that's why it's very clear for black Protestants in this country, the vast majority of them could check those theological boxes, 
that would count them as evangelical, but the vast majority do not identify as evangelical because they know there is so much more to evangelicalism than just checking theological boxes. So we already have disunity. And if we don't name it, and if we don't interrogate it, uh, then there is no path to actual unity. Yeah, which is, and and we've, we've talked about this on our podcast before, and it's something we keep going back to. And it's, I I love recent history, which is part of why I love this book so much, because up until the last couple of years, you know, I thought a lot of this, you know, the racial movements and stuff in America was like, you know, that, that was forever ago. And then, I'm, yes. I, you know, I'm like, wait, but no, wait, actually, if I look at the numbers again and I really think about it, that's like my dad was alive for some of that. Yes, <laughs> like that's exactly like one generation removed. That's it. Yeah, I just taught in my history class this afternoon on the civil rights movement, and I made that very point. And, you know, one of the things that I'm uh, going to have my students do in the next class is we're going to make a timeline of you know civil rights movement and um, the specific book we're reading, different events there. And then one of the things I like to have them do is is put their their own families uh, dates on that timeline. When was their when were their parents born? Right. When were their grandparents born? And just put their own map, their own lives and their families' lives onto that timeline. And it's it's really jarring this is this is recent yeah. history this is this is current memory hey guys we just wanted to take a quick break to tell you a few of the ways you can support us the whole church podcast your favorite church unity podcast yeah so you can follow us on patreon at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast you can subscribe to our show wherever great podcasts are found you can rate this show on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. You can sign up for our newsletter by going to our website or by emailing us at thewholechurch at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can share this episode on your own social media, or you can donate to our Cash App using the tag that's in the show notes. Especially that last one. It's a great way to contribute if you don't want to be burdened by like a monthly payment or if you just want us to get all of the money but with no middleman at all, Patreon is already really good at that. But yeah. you know, if you don't necessarily need the rewards you get from supporting us on Patreon, then Cash App's yeah. the way to go. There's a lot of needs with the show, and uh, you guys really are the only way we're able to keep this going. So thank you. Thanks. And so, some of the ways that's like hidden is just crazy to me. Like the amount of like the photos of like Martin Luther Jr. that were just made to look way older than the photos needed to look from that time era. It's just, it's, just, yeah, it's wild. It's, it's very recent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so with, with race that you make, you make several pretty bold claims about recent history in the evangelical church. And uh, <laughs> we, we do want to, we want to just talk about some of this and, and sure. um, so you say that the evangelical, the white evangelical church has embraced, patriarchal, authoritative, and Christian nationalist messages. Um, could you just break that down for us? Like, how, how do we see that in the last hundred years? How does that come out in your book? And oh, yeah. how does that play a part in what we're looking at now? Oh, so much there that that sentence said. And let me let me first blame my editor a little bit here. Uh, so, you know, the introduction will hit you hard, probably. There's a lot packed into the introduction, a lot of bold claims there. Initially, all of those claims were actually in the conclusion to the book. And when my editor read it, he's like, OK, this is all great. Put this all in the intro and then just come up with something else for your conclusion, uh, which is not <laughs> the way that academics generally write. Right? You know, I worked yeah. so hard to to 
build those arguments with evidence throughout the book. And so it felt jarring to have to take those and put them up in front of the evidence. Um, But I did because he knows what he's doing. And I think it was it was a good choice, but it does give it a really bracing feel. And then the book unpacks it. So, you know, looking at the centrality of and this is not all evangelicalism, I want to be clear, and it's not even all of white evangelicalism. Um, The book is not a, a history of evangelicalism. It is following this thread of really this connection between white evangelical masculinity and militarism as it takes shape, particularly in the post-World War II era up to the present. So that's really the thread that this book is tracing. And then it makes some claims about evangelicalism because it says this is a a dominant strand. Um, But what it shows is how this ideal, um, really the, the promotion and protection of white patriarchal authority moved to the center of evangelical identity in the Cold War era for a variety of different reasons. Uh, And it was always linked to Christian nationalism. So this idea of gender traditionalism, of what it means to be a Christian man, to be a, a protector, uh, and and to be tough and rugged made made sense in the Cold War era when we needed strong soldiers. It was also part of a backlash against feminism when feminism was seen as a threat to the American family. Um, but it was also emerged as an ideal in the era of the civil rights movement. And here is where we, um, we can make race mm-hmm. visible. And uh, it was uh, white patriarchal authority was seen as a way of enforcing order on a disorderly society. And in the American South in particular, uh, desegregation was seen as disrupting the social order. Um, and the religious right formed in part uh, around uh, immobilized in order to defend uh, segregated schools. And white evangelicals were at the forefront of that movement to defend parental authority. Um, and they meant the white parental authority um, and against the intervention of the federal government by which they meant uh, desegregation, right? So this is the historical backdrop where we see, um, oh, and and the Vietnam War is really a critical backdrop to all of this. Um, because uh, uh, evangelicals had really kind of united in the in the um, uh, late forties and fifties as uh, around their anti communism. And uh, they saw that communism was anti-God and it was anti-family and it was anti-American, all the things they held dear. And and so um, as they were coming together, trying to reassert their authority over American culture, coming together in the National Association of Evangelicals, they did so as ardently anti-communists. And that actually helped them to move to the center or closer to the center of American Mm -hmm. culture because most Americans were kind of united in these goals. They were also anti-communist. This is a consensus era. They were um, kind of into gender traditionalism, if you will. This was the baby boom, right? This is leave it to beaver, uh, at least white middle-class Americans. Um, Family (laughs) values were were all the rage. And, And then in the 1960s, uh, we see, oh, and they were pro-military, right? Cold War. Then the 1960s, all of this fractures. Um, and you have a lot of Americans questioning all these values of, uh, you know, you've got feminism, you've got civil rights movement, you've got the anti-war movement, you have things not going well in Vietnam. And that's when conservative white evangelicals really double down on these values. And it's the assertion of this rugged white patriarchal authority that really is the solution to all of these threats. 
And, and that's when it does move to the center of their identity. And that's when we see this unity between conservative evangelicals and secular conservatives. Uh, and this is where the John Wayne uh, uh, storyline <laughs> yeah. comes in, right? John Wayne, not an evangelical, not known for his family values, but he comes to symbolize this quote unquote traditional masculinity, this reversion to the way things, you know, once were in the mythical, you know, Wild West or Sands of Iwo Jima <laughs> or Green, Green Berets, the way things ought to be. And evangelicals embrace that identity. In doing so, uh, they end up, one of the arguments that I make is, uh, you know, changing the nature of Christianity say it, itself, changing who the Jesus of the Gospels is to them, changing what it means to follow Christ, because they end up remaking Christ in the image of this, this kind of ruthless warrior. Yeah, yeah. Which quick shout out. We had a, another friend of the podcast, uh, Pastor C.T. Kirk, wrote a book that was uh, How the West Was Whitewashed. Ah, uh, yes. That was, yeah, it's great stuff. If uh, if you haven't read it, listeners, check that out. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> there's so much there in what you just said. But a, a lot of that, the com- the common enemy, that's something that stands out to me, um, yeah. you know, as, as a unity podcast, you know, we think it really looks like the church keeps trying to do that, right? 9-11 happens and now it's, that's our common enemy. The Muslims are now our common enemy. And now all liberals are Marxists. So we're getting back to the communist thing. And I don't know, uh, to me, we've we've interviewed lots of people and no one's willing to say, that's how we have unity. We pick the common enemy. (laughs) Right, like everybody wants to say it's Christ, but it's not making it into our practice, it seems. No, you know, when I started writing this book, I was kind of working on on the assumption that uh, a lot of pundits were talking about in 2016 to to explain evangelical support for Trump was that um, evangelicals were were so afraid. Um, and what choice did they have but to run into the arms of the strong man, right? Um, because there's demographic decline, there's uh, you know the Barack Obama presidency, the sea change in LGBTQ, religious freedom, all these reasons for to be really afraid, and so they needed a strong protector. In their own words, ultimate fighting champion. Uh, and then when I look back to evangelical history, what I saw is time and again, uh, this rhetoric of fear was actually manufactured by evangelical leaders, men like Jerry Falwell Sr., men like Mark Driscoll, Mm -hmm. right? That they were manufacturing this sense of a threat, like completely making it up (laughs) in order, I saw, to consolidate their own power, right? It worked fabulously well. You create an enemy and you do create this internal unity, but you need the us versus them. And you don't just have this sense of unity on the inside, but you can also demand loyalty and sacrifice. Right? This was Mark Driscoll's playbook, because if we are at war and, you know, he, there was always a war to fight against the liberals and the feminists and even the church down the street that you just couldn't trust. Uh, if you're at war and this this military rhetoric just infused his church uh, and you know he'd have bodyguards flanking him you know again fabricating the sense that there is a real physical threat here and we are under attack or or might be any moment then he could demand this absolute loyalty and anybody who questioned anything was essentially a traitor and 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 they were cast out because this is war and the stakes are just so high. And when I saw those dynamics, I ended up kind of seeing them across conservative evangelicalism. When you can say that you're at war and the stakes are always eternally high, 
uh, you can not just create unity, but you can also, it's really great for fundraising. It's really great. You can just see these evangelical organizations and political organizations uh, thrive, usually when a Democrat is in office, is in the White House. And then they kind of fall apart when a Republican is in the White House because you just can't, it's harder to to have that sense of urgency and fear. And so it actually Mm -hmm. works in their favor whenever you can have this real or often perceived fabricated threat. And it can be external with Islamic terrorism. It can be internal with Democrats or secular humanists or liberals or feminists, you name it. There's always a threat and that enhances the power of leaders inside this militant framework. Yeah. And it's, and it's fascinating how so many don't see it, even though, you know, I I was part of that. I didn't see it. Like, I'm not saying, oh, you're dumb if you don't see this, you know, but like you have Barack Obama, who is arguably the most church going president we've had in my lifetime and my parents lifetime, you know, et cetera. Um, Joe Biden, one of the most devout presidents we've we've had in a very long time. And yet, you know, when they're in office, it's they're going to come and take it where you can't say these things in church and you can't preach this. And I'm like, man, eat. Even if it were a Muslim, I feel like you would be more inclined to think they're they're pro religious freedom. But yeah. instead, the, the one who's pro is the guy who's clearly the least religious of, of all the residents we've had in a long time. And I'm like, I right. don't. Uh, your book helped make a lot of sense of that, and um, I, I don't want to spend a, a ton of time on that. But could you just touch on how how did the church, the white evangelical church, tie itself so closely to politics? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it really it, you have to go back in history over time. And, and you can you know, you can look at somebody like Billy Graham, who uh, I, I didn't realize that, you know, I, I've read a lot of histories of Billy Graham and I didn't think I was saying anything too terribly new. Uh, I've kind of forgotten that evangelicals like to tell their own stories about Billy Graham and write their own histories. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, originally uh, some people were like, wow, you know, you just really, that's the, not the Billy Graham I ever knew. And, and, and I realized, oh yeah, this is, this is just the Billy Graham and that historians know. And, you know, he was extremely um, politically ambitious. And, mm-hmm. and to understand evangelicals goals in the 1940s and 1950s and ever since really uh, was this feeling of being marginalized coming out of the 1920s, um, feeling that they were not able to um, uh, maintain control of major denominations. They were kind of the laughing stock after the Scopes trial. Uh, they didn't disappear um, they didn't really retreat, but they were just digging in. They were uh, forming their own institutions. And then in the 42, they came together and said, we need to band together. We can, you know, they understood themselves as a faithful remnant uh, of American Christianity. And they just thought that they could do so much more together and that they could exert their influence over American culture and um, American society. And um, and politics was part of that. That was a really efficient way to kind of exert your influence. And Billy Graham was, he just loved it. He was politically ambitious. He, you know, he, he actually considered running for president himself and he loved to be in and out of the Oval Office. And, um, and so there was an understanding that, you know, when, when evangelicals present Billy Graham, it's this, this soul winning uh, uh, evangelist, that's who he is. And anything else is kind of on the margins, but, um, 
you know, he was much more than that. And even we have to recast some of that soul winning evangelism as what gospel was he converting people into, right? What was at the heart of his Christianity? It was soul saving evangelicalism. Yes, but there was a lot added to it. Mm -hmm. It was also patriarchal. It was also Christian nationalist. It was all of these things as well. He was a big supporter of uh, the U.S. military and, and a militaristic foreign policy, like all of these things. And that's what he and other evangelicals really packaged and sold as Christian. And, um, and they were very um, eager to, uh, to use the power that they had access to, to promote that vision of Christianity. Political power was one way, cultural power was another, right? Through the media, through Christian publishing, through Christian radio, Christian film, television, right? All of this stuff. They, um, they could justify as this is evangelism. This is spreading the good news. It was more than that. It was also, there's a ton of money changing hands here. Mm -hmm. A lot of money, a lot of power. And we just have to make that visible. That's the way the world works. It doesn't mean that they're evil. It doesn't mean, but we have to just, we have to be realists here. And, um, And then we can ask at a certain point, uh, you know, what does God require of us? What does it mean to follow Christ? What is the Christian witness in the world, in this country? And, and do, we, do we do the work of Christ um, through these kind of worldly powers and by grasping as, as, as much power as we can to get the quote unquote good news, uh, our understanding of the gospel out there? <laughs> or is the gospel message so radical that it just uh, upends our expectations and continually confounds us. I mean, that's the the Jesus of the Gospels that I think never lives up to their uh, the expectations of his disciples of of his followers, right? Um, you know, the triumphal entry. No, no, no. You're getting it all wrong. Christ divests himself of power. So I do think we need to ask uh, as Americans, as American Christians, right? What, what does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to be faithful? What sorts of cultural and political power ought we to um, make use of? Now, I'm a Reformed Christian, so I'm okay with politics. Right? We're supposed to be Christian in all aspects of our lives. Um, but we need to be very careful, I think, that we aren't transformed by that and that our faith isn't, well, you know, corrupted essentially, because it is so easy for us to justify what we're doing and to say it's in God's name and to very easily convince ourselves that it is when maybe what we're doing is is actually more for us. And it may actually be going against God's um, God's word and God's, God's call on our lives. Yeah, I am. Um... What I got from this, and what I, what I thought, honestly, I've thought for a long time is a lot of evangelicalism has fallen prey to pragmatism, yeah. and um, yeah. and see, yeah, that's the thing is 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 God your God, and that informing your politics, or is one party your God? And I, I wouldn't, I would want to believe you would agree with me on this, but I'm not, I'm not 100 percent sure. But yeah, I, I personally don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. Yeah, I care where your priorities are, mm-hmm. because when you let either side dominate what you're doing that will corrupt the religion maybe not the faith but the religion (laughs) 
Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I think it's perfectly appropriate for Christians to be involved in, you know, in politics, in partisan politics. Um, But for, um, you know, as individuals and and not locating, you know, our primary identity there or uh, really letting that define our allegiance. Uh, and, And I think that's that's really been a challenge. Uh, for the last half century or more uh, within white evangelicalism because many of their leaders actually said this is exactly what you should be doing, right? They modeled this loyalty um, to the Republican Party and, uh, you know, bulletin inserts made perfectly clear who you should be voting for <laughs> and the yeah. set of issues, you know, that were framed in a, in particular ways uh, really, really did... Um, um, kind of blur those lines. Yeah. Did you see last year where, um, well, uh, well, whatever. Um, Al Mohler, <laughs> he, yes. he had said, and, and I, I'm not sure if he misspoke or not. So I, you know, I don't want to speak of his character, but the, what he, what he said was essentially that, uh, if you're Christian, you have to vote Republican. And I understand that the black church is going to vote Democrats, but yeah, no. And I'm like, right, oh, right. Man, the way you worded that is just, Again, like either really telling or just the worst misspeaking anyone's ever done. I think it was telling, right? Again, uh, you know, who is the body of Christ to you or you know to Al Mohler? I can't I can't answer that question, but there there's a <laughs> bit of a tell there. Uh, again, like assuming a unity that does not exist, you know, writing off a huge swath of American Christians uh, because they don't. Uh, y- uh, their their political allegiances, um, and as they are living out their faith, right, and uh, their Christian their Christian faith in different ways politically, they don't count, right? They're not part of the church. Um, so, so yeah, I think mm-hmm. that that's quite telling, and it's actually helpful to have some of that um, out in public, so we can see it for what it is. We can hold it up, and then we can say, how did we get here, and how can we work our way back? Yeah, which this book does a great job of seeing how we got here. Um, I did want to mention uh, Frank Viola does Rethinking Unity, and it does um, some of what you do here with Billy Graham, where it shows some of the faults of these heroes that we're all united. Like, well, everybody loves C.S. Lewis. Everybody loves yeah. Martin Luther. And yes, they have their faults, too. Jonathan and, well, Edwards, George Whitfield. We yeah. can go on and on. Yeah. Right. And yeah, what you both do a good job of, though, is you don't just leave it there. You, you still I, I don't think either book makes it look like, well, we can't think of Martin Luther or Billy Graham as a Christian anymore. We just got to recognize that they, they did also have faults. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah. Billy Graham, absolutely a Christian. And, um, uh, but, but that's it. I think there's been such a, um, a a push in evangelical circles to have, have heroes. In fact, the earliest draft of this manuscript, when I started it, I started tinkering with this more than 15 years ago, actually. (laughs) And I noticed a while back that my first um, document on that became this book, kind of the research that became this book, I called Hero Worship. Uh, And I was just intrigued by how um, not just evangelicals wanted their heroes, but who those heroes were. And over and over again, they I I saw they were uh, 
militant white men. So they loved Teddy Roosevelt. They loved William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. They loved General Patton and General MacArthur and, you know, soldiers and cowboys. And that's what first put me on to this topic. And of course, John Wayne kept popping up as well. (laughs) Yeah. Now, would you say that that mentality started off at its worst or is it becoming worse? You know, are the, the John Waynes and the people you mentioned there, are they as bad as the, you know, the Donald Trump, the Mark Driscoll's popular right now um, with the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, but you you know, are we becoming more evil or has it just been the same level (laughs) and I'm experiencing it now. So it's more evil. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm a Calvinist. So we're always evil. We're always evil. Um, No, I, you know, it's so I don't even know. And I watch this really closely um, because um, part of me says no. If you go back in time, uh, you can find uh, I was just talking about the civil rights movement. Right. And let's talk about white evangelical um, involvement in the civil rights movement. You've got a few kind of, uh, you know, the side of you know pro-civil rights and you've got a uh, a lot um pro-segregationism and you've got white evangelicals committing horrific acts of violence in the american south uh, as well um and then you have a lot kind of in the middle so it's hard to say that things are worse today however it does it, it is true that more is out in the open now um and particularly in the last five years in in the wake of the the trump uh presidency mm. Uh, campaign and then and presidency campaigns, I guess, uh, that it it does seem like the harsher edges, um, what was before was was more unspoken or covered over with a kind of softer language, um, that that has just been ripped away. And, um, and there's something good about that. Again, it's good to see where we're at. It helps us to respond appropriately and not convince ourselves that, oh, they can't possibly mean that. Or no, it's it's really not that bad. But I think it's also dangerous because I think that that can, when extreme views are become commonplace, that can um, push us, push push more people to be comfortable with extreme views. And that's actually where I feel we are right now in terms of, you know, we can talk about the violence on January 6th. Uh, we can talk about recent survey data that has come out that shows, you know, a- alarming numbers of uh, white evangelicals are comfortable um, with, uh, you know, violence uh, to kind of restore America as they see it. It needs to be restored, the, this sort of thing, um, where, I, you know, as a historian, as a Christian, as an American citizen, I'm still trying to figure out what to do with with this data that's coming in and with what I'm hearing in different evangelical spaces. So it it might be worse than it has been before. Certainly some of the guardrails have been removed um, in terms of particularly in terms of um, um, the resiliency of our democratic norms and institutions right now. Yeah, yeah, that's um. <laughs> I, I can't follow that up with anything. <laughs> Sorry, you talked uh, to no, right? It's going to no, get depressing. Uh, well, no, it's it's good. I um, I I think people need to see the naked truth more than they're comfortable doing so, and um, hopefully this has helped some people do that. And and again, you know, we're not saying you can't enjoy listening to you know 
Matthew West or Casting Grounds. I don't, I don't care what you enjoy listening to or what books you read. You can That's watch John Wayne movies. It's cool. Yeah. 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 My grandpa loves John Wayne movies. My but, sister does. <laughs> yeah. I um, If it's on, I won't change the channel. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, so that being said, um, well, let, let's do this. What is one question when people ask you about this? Because I know you've been interviewed a hundred times <laughs> because you released this book and then January 6th happens, you know, the election, all these crazy things happen. So you've been interviewed all kinds of times about all of this. Um, what's one question that you just really hope people ask you when you get interviewed? Uh, you know, honestly, my favorite thing to talk about is the reception of this book. Because when I wrote it, you know, even though I wanted, uh, you know, I claimed that evangelicals, some evangelicals would read it, that um, I also thought a lot of evangelicals would really, really hate it. Uh, so as I wrote, I just thought, oh, they're going to hate, a lot of people are going to hate this book and probably hate me. Uh, and I just felt I needed to write it. I felt I needed to write it as powerfully as I could. And then I'd just see what happened. And then when um, my publisher's lawyer, you know, went through the manuscript with a fine tooth comb multiple times, and <laughs> when we were done with that process, she um, uh, told me to brace myself for vicious trolling. And and so that's what I went into the publication of this book with, just, you know, bracing myself. And within like two or three days of its release, I started getting the first letters. And I still to this day get probably three or four or five letters a day from readers. And almost without exception, like I can count probably on one hand the, the negative letters that I've gotten. Uh, otherwise, just letters of gratefulness, um, almost all coming from evangelicals themselves. And in that I had no idea that evangelicals themselves would be the ones to embrace this book, including conservative evangelicals, including evangelical complementarians who say, okay, we don't agree with everything <laughs> yeah. in this book, but there is truth here. And we can use this book to be more faithful Christians. And we do need to take another look at our loyalties, take another look at what we have claimed is God's word when in fact it may not be. And to see that reception, I mean, it's evangelicals themselves who, who made this book a bestseller. It's evangelicals who very early on started to um, um, pass the book on to others. Um, started to have adult Sunday schools uh, uh, sessions on this book, started to have <laughs> um, men's Bible studies focus, right? It went through the evangelical network. And, I, and it was amazing to me because I studied this, right? I wrote on how this works. I just had no idea that my book would be moving through those spaces. And that was evangelicals themselves. And especially in many cases, conservative evangelical men who were championing the book. Mm often at, at some cost to themselves and evangelical women too, um, particularly um, uh, those who are attentive to abuse and, um, um, and, and working on behalf of survivors. And so honestly, the reception of this book has been far beyond what I ever imagined. And when people ask for hope, right? We, I kind of ended <laughs> up a depressing note uh, before I, I I am concerned when it comes to you know, the whole fracture of the nation part, when I'm when it comes to the rise of authoritarianism, potential for violence, all of those things do uh, cause me concern. And that's not just here, but globally as well. But um, what gives me hope is what I've seen within evangelical spaces. I've seen so much humility. 
I've seen in, in receiving this book, in um, in examining their own complicity, I've seen so much courage. Like, you know, Russell Moore and Beth Moore get a lot of attention, you know, get some public abuse and they, they leave and they, you know, th- those are the public stories. I have heard so many stories similar mm. that don't get the media attention, don't get the fanfare. And often the, the people end up not landing on their feet, right? They lose their jobs. <laughs> Pastors are kicked out yeah. of their churches. They're fired. Um, and and still the the courage, the resiliency, and the faith that so many people are are working in very quiet ways. So that's my my hope, um, and that's really um, a, a source of in, incredible encouragement to me. Yeah, and and I know for some people it's gritting to think about the fact that people are making sacrifices and these things are happening. But just you know, as someone who loves the Bible, you know, I'm I'm back at the yeah, no, we, we, we count this as joy. And I'm like, yeah, I, I get so excited seeing people willing to stand up, do the right things. I'm, I'm actually really excited. We're going to be talking to uh, professor Russell Moore, or Dr. Russell Moore, I guess, in um, January of the upcoming year. And uh, yeah, just astounding stuff's going on in the church right now. And I'm, I'm excited about it. And just as, just as a testimonial about, about this book, I well, it was one of you, you know, you're talking about Billy Graham. I read it and, you know, I've, grew up with all of the the hero stories and it was funny because i'm texting my best friend's an agnostic and grew up without religion really i was like did you know billy Graham?" he's like um yeah yeah <laughs> and it's, it's like, yep. he's like yeah yeah and then you know when we talked he's like telling me all these things I'm like oh he also did this and it was like he never heard the good stuff and i never heard the bad stuff and yeah yeah it's crazy and it, it makes so much sense that you say that the intro was originally at the end because, you know, even I'm thinking about it because, like, I just re-listened to it, like, last week. I have it on Audible. So, <laughs> and, um, and I was like, man, that, that first intro is, like, very poignant. It has a lot of, you know, your own commentary on it. But a lot of the book, it's just kind of straightforward. These are the facts of what happened. And I was yeah. like, this is a weird. <laughs> For me, it was, it was like, huh. Yeah, this really, like, I'm bracing myself. And then it's like, here's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, a lot of people like who are fans of the book will say, you know, it's just objective facts and they'll, they'll defend the book in that way. And as a historian, I'm actually one who has to come in and say, so not right. There is no such thing as historians. We're very aware <laughs> of our own subjectivity and, and there is no such thing as just objective facts. There is a lot of evidence that I marshal here, but then I, I, I give it a narrative arc. Right. And so I want to own that. And so you can reject my interpretation. You can say there needs to be other pieces here, but the evidence that I bring does have to be grappled with, right? It still is real. And even if you don't like this ending or this uh, interpretation, our understanding of American evangelicalism does have to account for this storyline as well. And how we do that, I mean, it's a it's an ongoing project. And I think that's what we need to be. Uh, historians are busy with that, but I think evangelicals themselves, right? This reckoning uh, is something that we need to actively be participating in. Well, yeah. And I, I firmly believe that the historians, the Christian historians of the future will be including how this book impacted our culture in their books. So uh, maybe we'll be alive to see that. That would be great. Um, That'd be awesome. But yeah, right. Um, so one thing we always like to ask our guests just as we're wrapping up is just if you had to give a single, just a tangible action that people could go do to help maintain the unity of the church, just something practical. What one action would you tell people to do? Mm. 
you have to cross cross those boundaries. Uh, we have set up so many boundaries, um, built walls, really, around what we perceive to be right and true, and and you know physical boundaries. And so, I think in in white evangelical spaces in particular, there's been a tendency to equate white evangelicalism as you are positioned inside of it with Christianity and with Christian truth. In one of the best ways to um, uh, kind of bring a little bit more uh, humility to that positioning is to connect yourself to Christians who are different from you, uh, to Christians who um, uh, don't look like you, to Christians from various traditions. Some, you know, might be your next door neighbor. You know, you might have to uh, go to a different, you know, part of town, <laughs> maybe. Um, but there are so many ways to be in community with members of the body of Christ who are outside our little circles. And um, I think that's hugely important to do that. And it's it's through these relationships that we can learn to see our, um, to experience faith through different eyes. And um, and I think that's really the body of Christ at work, right? It's, it, it, we are impoverishing our own experience of the body of Christ if we stay in our own enclaves. And so we really have to, and, and in this country in particular, or maybe not particular, but in this country, you have to, you have to sometimes work to, um, you know, we have a history of segregation. Our churches are segregated. Our neighborhoods are segregated in many places. You have to work to worship with people who have different experiences, who look different than you. But I think it's absolutely essential. If we are seeking unity, we need to actually be in spaces. And that doesn't mean inviting one or two into our spaces <laughs> where we stay super comfortable. That means um, those of us who are white um, need to work hard to go into spaces where we are not um, at the center of things. Yeah, yeah. If uh, you are a white evangelical listening to this, maybe visit an AME Zion church. That would uh, be challenging. And they have pretty strong theology, I think. Um, <laughs> but maybe yeah. that's giving away my own opinions too much. Um, <laughs> but I, um, yeah, uh, another thing is Twitter can be easy to abuse, but it also can be helpful. You know, you can get to your own bubble. But yeah. um, I follow Southern Seminary and the seminary that Pete Inns teaches at. Yeah. which are wildly different in almost every way. And yeah. that is one thing you can use social media to follow just the whole church, if you will. And uh, exactly. I think seeing those different perspectives is the only way you can be a part of God's church, you know, the cap, that capital C there. <laughs> so something exactly. I would encourage everybody to do. And um, yeah, just, just cross the borders. Like she said, that's, that's great stuff. Um, so the last thing we do is just call our God moment segment. We just share something God's been up to with us recently. And it could be a blessing, challenge, whatever. Um, trying to think. Uh, this week, honestly, has just been like every other week. Um, no, uh, okay. So today we had people come into work that were kind of watching us and asking questions about what we were doing. Made me very nervous. And they didn't really spend a ton of time where I was at. But I was the last person they stopped at. <laughs> and afterwards, we all got donuts. And I found that a great blessing. So, yeah, that's going to be mine. <laughs> I was blessed with donuts today. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so. Uh, um, yeah, for me, I was, I'm just going to go with. Um, it, it has been 
stunningly gorgeous here in Michigan the last few days. Um, you know, the the kind of last rays of sunlight, it feels like for for several bleak months. And the trees are golden and crimson and it is just stunningly beautiful, uh, the the afternoon sun. And so on the way home from school, uh, my son and I were just like, kind of blown away with the the light and the beauty. And, you know, this is a teenage son I'm talking about. We don't have a lot of tender moments, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was nice to be able to connect on, on uh, around something that was just breathtakingly beautiful and to savor that together, even just for a few minutes. Awesome, awesome. All right. Well, hey, uh, if you're listening to this and you enjoyed this episode, uh, just consider sharing it with a friend for us. It just always helps to get the word out there with these things. Um, and uh, Kristen, uh, where can people go to find you, follow your work, get a copy of Jesus and John Wayne, all that good stuff? So Twitter is the best place to connect with me. I spend too much time there, but uh, it's like you said, it's just a wonderful way to interact with people um, all over the map. And so I, I like Twitter a lot. I also am on Facebook. I have a Facebook author page. Both are at KK Dumez, K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. And then I also have a website where I put up a lot of writings and events, uh, and that's kristendumay.com. Awesome, awesome. And then uh, some future guests we're going to have on the show, we're going to have Andrew Croft of the World Watch Weekly Podcast, uh, Eric Nevins, who is the founder of the Christian Podcast Association, and uh, Dr. Russell Moore, like we said earlier, is uh, the director of Public Theology Project at Christianity Today right now. And uh, we might, at the end of this season, have Francis Chan, you know, and uh, the, the season doesn't end until he agrees. So, uh, Francis, please, please get on that. <laughs> hey, guys, thank you for listening. If you want to hear the last thing we do, just head on over to Patreon. <laughs>